Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, welcome to Kingsway. It's five days before Christmas. How many of you are ready? How many of you still have a lot of shopping to do and wrapping? I'm thankful I have a wife. Let's just put it that way. All right. <clears throat> and Amazon. But anyway, hey, uh, real quick, if, you're, uh, if you, you, know, you don't have technology or you didn't see it, there's a big kind of announcement we put out this week, but I want to focus today on Jesus. If you don't have a copy, you can get one out here at our table of the loop that we put out this week. Otherwise, I recommend you go and read it. And now you'll be hanging. Please don't do it right now. Let's stay focused on Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. The famous Christmas text, even if they try to leave it out of various Peanuts plays. Here we go. Luke 2, verse 1. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who's now obviously pregnant, though he did not say that to her. There's a little note for the men in the room. All right. And while they were there... The time came for her baby to be born, and she gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. There was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. They keep telling us that for some reason. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find him wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heavens and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village, found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened. And what the angel had said to them about this child, all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. So my son was in a play here at school, my second son, Levi, and uh, he was given the part in the play in the venue I got to see this week. Uh, and the, what is it? I've heard him say it a million times, but I don't have it in this translation. The angel of the Lord... Uh, I can't remember now. I've heard him say it a thousand times. But all I know is that the critical moment where it says, and the angel of the Lord said, somewhere along the way, my oldest son, Matthias, is a bit like his daddy. He decides to be funny. And he decides to insert into Levi's lines, chew. So I come home from work one day. The door opens. And hey, how is everybody? And Levi's so proud of himself. He's got this line memorized. Mommy's been working with it all day. Hey, why don't you do your line for Levi? So there he says, and the glory of the Lord shown around them. And the angel said... 
And all of a sudden, my boys all go in unison, achoo. I'm like, I don't remember that. Was that in the Hebrew? Like, my kids learning Greek? Like, what is going on? So then, every time my son does this text, that part of the text that's his, every time the boys are, achoo, achoo. I'm like, he's going to get on stage. The pastor's kid, right? Because you've heard about PKs. If you haven't, let me tell you, woo. And he's going to get up there, and he's not going to remember. It's going to be like rote response. Because that's how it goes. He's just going to blurt it out, and everybody's going to go, what? And opening their Bibles. I guess that'd be good. Everybody open their Bible and look at the real thing. And sure enough, he didn't. He did good. Daddy's a little bit nervous. I had the phone out. I'm like recording it. My heart's, you know, beating. I'm like, yes, okay, score. He did it. But I was a little stressed. I was a little worried. And then I, I think it was the next day they, or the next day of school for him, it was two days later, he went, they went over to um, a retirement home, and they did the play there. And again, I was like, I'm not going to be there. Mama's going to be for that one. Oh, let's hope he does it right. Or although, I guess you could wake everybody up or give everybody a heart attack. They did what? Like, anyway, so here was my point. You're like, where is it going with this? This is a beautiful story, a beautiful story that we've heard so many times, so many times, that when it's off, we notice it. And yet, when it's on, we don't necessarily get it. We miss it. And I watched the whole play, and like every other parent in that room, I was more anxious for my kid doing the right thing than I was engaging the story. Just like a lot of you here today, I know you're here, it's Christmas, and welcome, we welcome you to Kingsway. I probably won't see you again until Easter, but we're so glad you're with us today. Just teasing you, but I'm serious. And we've heard this story so many times, so many times, so many times. You can quote the details, at least in big form, and then we can miss the real meaning, the real purpose of the story itself. And yet it's throughout the story. There are these things that we're told and that are repeated in the story, and they mean something. But if we don't notice them, we don't pay attention to them, we miss them. Did you notice in chapter 2, verse 1, it starts, look at chapter 2, verse 1, it starts with this. At that time. The Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census was going to be taken. Why is that relevant? Well, it's relevant because the people of God, the Israelites, are in Roman captivity. Now, you may not know much about history. That's fine. I don't either. But what little I do know, I like to put out there so everybody thinks I know more than I do. So, that's a joke for those of you who don't know me. Anyway, Rome was a bad nation. They came at the tail end of a, of a series of nations that conquered and tried to rule. So you get Babylon, and you get the, the Persians and the Medes, and then you get Greece, and then you get Rome. And often it's referred to as Greco-Roman because there was a point where the two kind of were blended together. And, but Rome was the worst of them all. In fact, if you go all the way back even just to the Old Testament to Daniel, who was hundreds of years before this, Daniel prophesies about all this stuff, and he tells about Rome, and Daniel is terrified because of what he saw in Rome. These were mean evil people. The, the Israelites in that day were under intense, intense oppression. The taxation was horrible. The pagan worship was horrible. It was just a bad deal. Immorality abounded. It was everywhere. They were in a constant state of fear. A constant state of anxiety. But there was this little flitter of hope. And the flitter of hope came through the fact that everybody knew the Messiah was coming, but they just didn't know when. In fact, many uh, commentaries today will tell you that the people in that day were, and sometimes you'll find this phrase, which I think is at least either intentionally funny or funny, they were pregnant with anticipation that the Messiah was coming. If you were to track back some of the Old Testament prophecies, everything seemed to point that this is about to happen. It is on the brink of literally birthing onto the scene. This is coming any day now. The Messiah, the King, the Lord, he will come. We don't know exactly when, but we know it's close. And even if it's not close, they are begging that it's now. 
Oh, God, please send your Messiah. Because when your Messiah comes, he'll free us. When your Messiah comes, he'll save us. When your Messiah comes, he'll release us from the oppression, from the taxation, from the pain. And you know, if you're an Israelite, this isn't the first time you've prayed that prayer. The first time you prayed that prayer, actually, was hundreds, even thousand years before that. See, the Israelite people, if, if you don't know the history of the Bible, it's okay. Let me just bring you up to speed real fast because it's all relevant to today. God calls a man named Abraham, and he tells him, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And Abraham has a son. Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has two kids, but one of them is Jacob. And Jacob ends up birthing the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those 12 sons of Jacob is a guy named Joseph. And he eventually leads his brothers, and they end up living in Egypt. And hundreds of years later, fast forward now to a guy named Moses. I just covered like hundreds of years of biblical history. That was impressive, right? Hundreds of years later, the Israelites find themselves living in Egypt, and now the ruler, the Pharaoh of Egypt, he's a bad dude. He's oppressive. Sound familiar? He's evil. And he doesn't remember all that, the, that Joseph had done for Egypt. You can find all that at the end of Genesis. He doesn't remember that. And he doesn't care. And he's afraid of the Israelites. So he increases their burden, making this nation that keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. He makes them the slaves of Egypt. And he keeps making their burden greater and greater and greater. And do you know what happens if over hundreds of years you live in slavery? You start to have slave mentality. And when you have that in that day, that meant you lived in a constant state of fear and anxiety and stress and pressure. This is huge because then when God comes in and he says to a guy named Moses, I'm going to save my people. I've been hearing their cries. I've been listening to their voices. I've, everything that's been going on, I've been well aware. I've been fully engaged. You think I'm not, but I'm totally tuned into what's going on. And Moses, I have seen, I have heard, and now I'm going to rescue. And Moses is going, yeah, God, remember this at the burning bush? Yeah, God, that sounds great, God. Go do that, God. And he says, okay, now Moses, go. And Moses is like, wait, who go? You go. Me go Where? You go to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and tell him what I've said. Wait, you said you had seen. You said you had heard. You said, I don't talk no good, God. I can't do this. And God says, no, Moses, see, I'm going. And I'm sending you as my feet, as my hands, as my mouth. I'm sending you to go. And we're going, what does any of this have to do with Jesus? Well, stick with me. So Moses goes in and he does a whole bunch of miracles. You may have heard of these various miracles Moses does. And he leads the people out and he brings them to the Red Sea and parts the Red Sea and there's dry land. And then he leads them into the wilderness and it's just miracle after miracle after miracle. God shows up with his presence in a mighty way and a cloud comes around the mountain and there's thunder and lightning and people are terrified and it's thing after thing after thing and he gets them out into the desert and now they're grumbling again. And you see, life has a way of doing this to us. Here's what God knows about the Israelites, what God knows about you, what God knows about me that's in the text, if you're paying attention, it's huge, and that's this, we will tend, we will tend to trust something other than God because we think we have control. Let's just be honest for a second, isn't that your biggest problem? You either have control or you want control and you're afraid to give it up. And the reason why you're afraid, is my guess, is because something happened to you at some point. See, when you, when you were a little baby and everything was perfect, even if for only one day, 
You had trust. You cried. What did your parents do? They held you. You soiled yourself. What did your parents do? They changed you. You were hungry. What did your parents do? They fed you. And in doing these things, your parents revealed to you, you can trust someone else to care for you. So what did you do? You cried more. But then that all changed one day. I know. He's trying to be an illustration for us here. (laughs) And it all changed one day for you, for me, for all of us. You know that day, that first time that something happened that was out of your control and somebody didn't come through and the person who was supposed to not hurt you but did? Remember that day? Remember that day that you got the phone call and out of nowhere you were told somebody you loved died? I wasn't ready for that. That wasn't on my calendar today. Remember that time that uh, something wasn't feeling right? You went to the doctor and something dramatic happened and you went to the doctor and said, look, this isn't good. I can't imagine why you didn't put that in your calendar that day. Remember that time you found out that you were going to lose your job? You weren't sure how you were going to make ends meet? Remember that time that um, you found out that, that your spouse has been cheating on you for a long time? Remember that one? Remember the time you found out that your baby uh, inside your belly wasn't going to make it? See, all of these kinds of moments and more, remember that time your friend stabbed you in the back? Remember that time your, uh, your dad was going through a hard season at work and so he wasn't paying attention to you and you felt abandoned? Remember the time your parents split and you felt abandoned? Now, all of these moments of life, and you could add more. We just create a list, a long list of all these things. All these things, what they do to us is they create in us these various traumas in our lives. And what happens when trauma hits our life is our bodies then go into a trauma state. There's some fascinating stuff out there today. I've been reading and listening a lot this week, but also over the last 18 months to two years about this whole thing. It is amazing the stuff that's out there. As uh, doctors and scientists and even psychiatrists are studying what we call our nervous system and the way our nervous system responds to different fear and trauma issues. And again, there's some really good stuff out there. I don't know that I believe all of it yet. I'm still wrestling with it, but here's what I do know. So you've heard this before, right? When you go into a fear state or a trauma state, what happens? You go into a fight or flight mode, right? Did you know it's actually bigger than that? So fight and flight is what we would call our, our, our hyper uh, response. There's also something we would call our hypo response. So if you've got a, a high end on things, you've got a low end on things. And a hypo response is, think of like a deer in the headlights, like, uh. And then there's also what I, what I, so what I like to call fight, flight, fright, and then I like to add one, um, and that's what I call fold, just because I'm a preacher and I like four Fs. Think of like an opossum, right? Something comes up on the opossum, and you're like, you should probably bite that thing. Like, is it dead? Uh, I don't know. Kick it. Like, nothing happens. It's just laying there. Now, here's the point. You may be what in the world is he talking about? I promise, when I get to the end, you'll be like, oh, wow. Or you'll go, I have no idea what that guy was saying. Either one is going to happen. Here's the point. When life happens, you don't trust because you're afraid to trust the one who's in control of everything. So something happened in your life, something's happening in your life right now, and it is out of your control, and so you spend your life in fight or flight mode. This is why you can't stop fighting with your spouse, even though every bone of your body says, stop fighting. It's Christmas. 
This is why you keep uh, running away from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship. You think to myself, one of these days I've got to stop running, but you are so afraid of the intimacy of somebody else getting to know you that you just keep running. This is why some of you can't sleep at night because you are in such a state of anxiety that something's going to happen and you won't be able to control the outcome. So you stay up all night working or reading or studying or doing something because you just can't calm down enough to allow your body to relax. That's why some of you literally can't make a decision. You are paralyzed because you're afraid you're going to make the wrong one. And so what happens if for hundreds of years you're a slave? If for hundreds of years, somebody tells you what to do and when to do it and how to do it. If for hundreds of years, you get whipped for working your hardest. If that's what happens for hundreds of years, and then God comes in and says, I love you. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to save you. Trust me. You go, wow, that sounds really good. I'd love to do that. I just don't know how. So do you know what God did to the Israelites? He takes them out into the desert, away from all of that. But they're not in the promised land. They're wandering in the land between Egypt and the promised land. And then he says to them, all right, today I'm going to feed you. I'm literally going to drop bread from heaven. It's called manna. And you're going to take it and you're going to eat it today. Don't take more than you need for today. Only take what you need for today. And some people didn't trust God because they thought they had to be in control of everything. So what do they do? They go out and gather more than they need, and they try to hide it. And the next day when they woke up, it was spoiled and full of maggots, and it was gross. And God said, no, see, I'm going to take care of you. Trust me. Take only what you need for today, and I'll provide tomorrow. And God continued to do this with the Israelites. It was battle after battle. Okay, now we're going to have you go take down this wall. How are you going to do that? What kind of weapon do you want us to build? you want us to build a catapult with a big boulder and a fire? No, 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 no. I just want you to walk around the wall. You want us to do what? Yeah, seven times. Go ahead. Just do it. And on the last day, just shout as loud as you can, but just don't speak before. What in the world are you doing, God? Now, see, I, don't, I want you to realize that you will conquer in this life, but you will conquer through me because of me, because I am going to provide for you every step of the way. And as soon as you try to take control of this and do it on your own, the whole thing's going to fall apart. So relax. You're like, what does any of this have to do with Jesus. Well, later on in Jewish history, if you keep going forward, Israel hasn't learned their lesson. Sound like us yet? And so God has these various rulers, and they're really more like puppets. We call them judges. The entire book of the Bible of Judges is based on this. The judges show up, and the judges are leading, and God's dead. And the people are looking around at everybody else, and they go, but look, God, they have kings. And those kings have rules, and those kings have armies, and those kings have palaces, and they look really impressive, God. And God's saying, you don't need that. You have me. Oh, I know, God, but imagine if we had one of those. We need a king. And God says, you don't need a king. We need a king. You don't Need a king. I am your king. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. Yeah, but we don't trust you to do that, God. We want to control the outcome. All right, I'll give you a king, but just realize when you get this king, he's going to do what all kings do. He's going to tax you. He's going to make life hard for you. And they do. They get Saul. And Saul turns out to be a bad king, and so God raises up a shepherd boy, interesting in this text, and his name is David. And David ends up leading as as good as any king can, and yet this king was so, so frail. 
and so full of failure. And this King David, he sets up a home. It's his home city. It's the city known as Bethlehem. In Hebrew in that day, different than today, it's Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Literally means house of bread, which is a really funny name for a city. Until we get to this text in Luke and we see that that God is now restoring and controlling and putting all the pieces of history together and he's finally fulfilling all these prophecies and he's coordinating all of time down through history down to this very moment where now he's going to bring in the king into his city, the city of Bethlehem. And he sends Joseph, this earthly dad, for this king and he's sending him into the city and you're like, why is this such a big deal? Well, not only is it a fulfillment of so many prophecies, but we know this king is not like other kings. This king, Jesus, is going to be different and, and if I can help you connect dots for just a moment, if you can stick with me for just a moment while you go, where is he going? Just keep sticking with me. Jesus comes along and in John chapter six, he starts literally miraculously feeding people with bread and with meat and he makes this fantastic statement. He says, I am the bread of life. And everybody goes, what? And all of a sudden people start connecting dots. Oh, Jesus is saying that he is like the manna in the desert. You mean when God miraculously began to show you can't trust me in the desert, Jesus is here to say you can trust God because I am the real bread, the bread that you need every single day. And when you gaze upon me, when you look upon me, when you lean into me, you'll see that I am here to meet all of your needs. I am here so that you can trust God, so that you don't have to control the outcome and be stressed out or fighting all the time or anxious all the time or paralyzed all the time. Just simply trust me. And then he says to John 6, this very weird, weird thing. He says, and anybody who eats my body and drinks my blood will have life. And everybody's like, Jesus, that's weird. And in fact, in John chapter 6, verse 66, says, lots of his disciples, say, they go, I think Jesus has lost it. I don't think he's the king we thought he was. But there's a few of them, like the 12 who gather around, and Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, Peter, are you going to leave me too? And Peter's like, uh, I don't get this whole eat body, drink blood thing, but where am I going to go and find life? You know what Jesus just did with Peter? He gave him the chance to be in control of his own life. Peter, you can literally run your own show. Or Peter, you don't have to understand everything that I'm doing or saying. You only have to take the next step. So Peter, you ready to take the next step? I'm taking the next step, Jesus. Okay. And let's just take the next one. By the way, the next one's a doozy. You're going to walk on water. Oh, okay. But before you ever get to walk on water, you know what you have to do? You got to get out of the boat. Now stick with me. Let's come back all the way to Luke chapter 2. These angels show up to these shepherds at night. David was a shepherd. He tells them to go to the city of David, the house of bread, where they're going to find the Messiah, the king. And what is it they say? What is it the thing they sing together in verse 14? I want you to see this. Verse 14, they say, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. I've told you this before, church, but I realize it's Christmas Sunday, so a lot of you weren't here. The word peace for the Hebrew people is the word, can you help me out? Shalom. And shalom literally means a whole body health, like emotionally, relationally, spiritually, physically, medically. It's like everything. So when a Hebrew person looks at a Hebrew person and says shalom, what they're saying to you is, I don't just want you to have no fighting in your life. I want you to have this sense that somebody, something beyond you is in control of all things and you can trust him with this thing. 
And so you can have peace. Later, a guy named Paul, he writes about this peace, and he says, God will give you a peace, and if you know this, help me out here, that passes all understanding. Meaning it's not going to make any sense. You're not going to be able to connect all the dots. You're not going to be able to figure it out. But God can give you a peace. So these angels are proclaiming a message that is huge. And the question that we begin to get to is, why? Why are these angels proclaiming peace through this little baby? I mean, I've held lots of babies. I have had three of them in my life. Not one of them have brought peace. In fact, I would argue that all three of them have brought everything but peace into my life. I used to get sleep like six to ten hours anytime I wanted. There used to be a lot less of the word no and stop and don't in my house which I think are words that create no peace. There were a lot less bloody noses. There were a lot less medical bills. And I had more money to do whatever I wanted with. These kids are ruining me. (laughs) And yet, we're told peace through this little baby. How could a baby bring peace? What Luke is trying to get into the mind of the Hebrew writers for us today, if we are biblically astute, historically astute, he's trying to build a, the word I would use is a motif. He's trying to build a cultural understanding that when we read this, what we would see is an exodus. Like the original exodus, but it's bigger, it's better, it's grander. Because he didn't come just to free us from Rome. He didn't come to free us from Egypt. He came to free us from Satan, sin, and death. And the reality is sin in this world, sin in this world, yours and mine, has created so much pain, so much trauma, so much lack of trust, so much fear and anxiety that all of us long to be in control of all things because we think if we could just somehow be in control, then somehow everything's going to work out because we would never mess up. And the reality is when we take an honest, reflective look at our lives, we see that us being in control is the reason why everything is so messed up. Because the more control we have, the less trust we have. But we're so afraid to trust. If I really give this over to God, if I really entrust this to Him, will He do what I want Him to do with it? Let's just be really honest. Isn't that the question? And the answer is, probably not. But if you really trust your life, your family, your kids, over to Him, and you slowly start to let go, you find that He literally is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. In this series, we've been wrestling with various Christmas traditions. Where did they come from and why do they exist? What do they mean today? Have you ever asked this question, why do we celebrate Jesus' birth on December 25th? All this tells us is at that time. Why December 25th? Oh, I've heard all the rumors. You can go Google it. You'll find plenty of them. I used to have cable and watch the History Channel just like all of you. I've read the news articles that say that When Constantine became a Christian, which happened somewhere in the mid-300s, since he was the Roman emperor and he was a pagan prior to that, 
He instituted that all the Christians should worship Jesus, so therefore they just took what everybody else was doing, worshiping pagan gods on December 25th, and just applied it to Jesus. Here's the problem with that theory. It doesn't hold up historically. There's literally no documentation of that being true. You would think that if the, the Christian popes who went from no power, great oppression at the end, like the end of the second or third century, the 200s and early 300s, if they were great persecution for Christians, you would think that if suddenly these popes who had now had power, if they wanted to make some sweeping changes in Rome, they would have at least told us nothing. There's no writing about it at all. Now, I get why logically people could connect the dots because we aren't 100% certain why December 25th. So, because December 21st or 22nd is um, what we call like the Sol Invictus, it's the day that is celebrated. It's the day where the, all of a sudden it stops getting shorter and shorter and shorter days and all of a sudden we kind of turn that corner and it starts getting longer and longer and longer and everybody goes, thank you, Jesus, that's getting longer. Well, the people on that day literally worshipped it as the sun god has finally beaten the night and he's winning, Yay! And so people would say, well, that's close to December 25th. There also was a pagan false god, a deity that was literally worshipped on December 25th because you're a couple days after the Sol Invictus, and so now they're saying that. So they're like, look, these Christians came along and they stole it. But again, there's no historical documentation that that's the case. In fact, did you know that for hundreds of years, nobody even talked about Jesus' birth in terms of a date? You know why? The Christians didn't care. The Christians were more concerned with another date the day he died. In fact, all leading up to here, Christians were writing about the day he died and figuring out the timeline and trying to figure out the math and exactly when it was. And based off the best possible evidence, they've nailed it down, according to John's gospel, to March the 25th as the day that Jesus died. March the 25th. You know what, nine months after March the 25th is? Let me just help you out. It's five days from now. December the 25th. If you were to go back and study church history, and it's extremely fascinating, there's some great websites you could look this stuff up on. There is reason, good reason to believe Jesus was conceived when the angel came to Mary and said, by the way, you're pregnant and there's a baby in your belly. Jesus was conceived on March 25th, the same day he died. Now, I can't prove it to you with absolute certainty. What I could tell you is Christians started teaching this and believing it as early as the mid-400s. And there's reasons if you just look historically, if you were to go back, and, and again, as I told you, the Israelites were in captivity in Rome, but before Rome, there was Babylon and some other things. Hundreds of years before Jesus even pops up on the scene, there were Jewish rabbis in captivity, and they are writing about this, this amazing thing. Again, this couple hundred years before Jesus, they're writing about the way that God always seems to unfold time perfectly according to his own scheme and plan. And they keep writing about how certain events seem to keep happening at the same time frame. And in that time frame, I'm not saying they're right, but there was this general belief that the earth was created roughly around March the 25th. And these Jewish rabbis were just commenting on how it just seems like God keeps bringing about birth and redemption in his calendar at the same time. Fast forward a couple hundred years, and a Messiah is conceived, and the belief is that he was conceived 
on the same day that 30-something years later, he died. You could literally argue that Jesus was born for one purpose, to die. And why is that even relevant? Like, Matt, this has been all over the place. Because here's what I know about you and here's what I know about me. Life is hard. And Christmas, perhaps no more than any other time in life, because it's at Christmas that you feel most alone in all the ways that you shouldn't. Christmas is the time that brings the most amount of grief, the most amount of joy, the most amount of stress, the most amount of pressure. There's an unbelievable amount of suicides that take place from Thanksgiving until just after New Year's Day. Some of it's what we call sad. It's the time change and the sun and all that. Some of it's just the fact that you spend three major holidays together and life is not going the way you thought it would and you stop trusting that the one who's in control is really in control. And there comes a moment where all of us have to let go and say, God, I trust you. I need this peace you promised. And God knows that about you. So do you know what God's doing? He's challenging you just to take the next step. He's going to lead you out of these responses that you have created in yourself, these responses that ultimately feel, give you the sense of control. He's going to ultimately break these strongholds that you have in your life that you feel like you have to dictate everything and you have to be in control of everything. He's just going to slowly break them away so that one after another, you could just simply trust him. And when you come up against the next thing, the next major decision, the next major opportunity, the next major thing, you're going to say, I don't have to figure it all out. I just have to take a step of faith. I just have to simply trust him to be good and faithful he's brought about his son to die to bring peace so that i can trust oh god help me to trust guys i'm saying that right now for me god help me to trust and i realize some of you are visiting and you won't understand the context of what i'm about to say and that's okay This past 18 months has been really hard at our church, amen? It's been hard for me. And time and time and time again, I know a lot of you are hurting. I know there are those who've left our church who are hurting. I know it. It breaks my heart. I never never wanted where we are. I never wanted where we are. But in those quiet moments where I'm just calling out to God to do something, he just keeps telling me this peace. Matt, I am the good shepherd. These are my sheep. They aren't yours. You may be the guy who gets the honor of speaking to them about me every week, but they are my sheep. And I love them. And I'm sovereign over them. And I'm leading them. And I'm teaching them to trust just like I'm teaching you. You know, the thing that's hard about trust is uh, it's easy to trust God when it's something simple. Like, God, I don't know if I'm going to make it to this meeting on time. Not that I've ever wondered that. (laughs) And so, God, I'm going to take control of the moment by driving faster. And if I don't make it, what's the worst that happens? I have to look at everybody and say, sorry, I'm late again. But what if it's something like what went on in our community through Plainfield to Danville this week? I literally came to a meeting and had no idea. My wife texted me, like, what is going on? I call her real quick. I like, guys, I have a rule. My wife texts me, things like that. I'm allowed to interrupt a meeting. I'm like, 
are you talking about? She said, man, I just took Matthias, my oldest son, to uh, River Birch, and there's a police officer there. What is going on? They said it's an option to go to school today, and the guys in the meeting are telling me, oh, you haven't heard? I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. There were some threats that were made. If you live in our community, if you're visiting from out of town, you don't know, but if you live in our community, I don't know how you don't know at this point. And I hung up that phone, and I'm like, okay, well, it's not in Avon, and apparently Avon police are not too stressed, so I trust them. I'm not too stressed. But i got to be honest, I sat in the meeting. I'm not sure I was overly engaged. Do you know why? Because I was afraid. Everything in me wanted to call her back and say, don't take him to school. I have no reason to be afraid, but don't take him to school because what if today was the day? And my heart literally sank. You know why? Because I thought to myself, what if today was the day? What if today? What if today? What if today? And all of those responses from my life where various traumas and things have happened and, and things didn't go the way I thought they should or happened the way I believed that they should. And all of a sudden, you know, God's trying to break this control in my life, this 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 thing in my life, and, and all of a sudden I'm like, okay, God, I, I, have to, I have to let him be your son. I gotta be his daddy. I gotta protect him. I gotta teach him. I gotta train him. But at the end of the day, he has to be your son, and I have to trust him to your hands. So the question for all of us is, do we trust God to do what God needs to do? And here's what God keeps telling me. If you trust me, I'll work all things together for the good of those who love me. And this is why this is so powerful in this text. I want you to see the next story through the lens of everything I'm saying and then watch where it ends. And I want you to see this through Mary's eyes for a minute. Look at the very next thing in the story. Luke chapter two, verse 21. Eight days later, so little baby Jesus born in a manger, sweet little eight pound, 11 ounce Jesus. When the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus. The name given by the angel even before he was conceived. So God knew about Jesus before he was born, just like he does you. Then it was time, notice this language, the next thing. Then then it was time for the purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. We're just going to do the next thing, God. We have no idea what all these crazy things are happening around us mean. We're just going to take the next step. So the law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required to the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All that means is they were poor. They couldn't afford the regular sacrifice. Verse 25, at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. Do you hear this about Simeon? He's an old guy. He loves God. He's just being patient. God, Rome is evil. God, Rome is making life miserable. I'm just trusting you. But look at the next verse. Verse 26. The Holy Spirit, sorry, was upon him and had revealed to him he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Verse 27, that day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and he praised God. Before I say, read you what he praised God, are you, I want you to get the details of the story. Old guy, devout, just trusting God. God, I know things are horrible for Israel. I know Rome is cruel and evil. I know it's hard to trust, but God says, trust me, Simeon, I'm gonna take care of you. In fact, I'm gonna make sure you see this Jesus and then he leads Simeon. What does he do? He leads Simeon to the temple the very day that Mary and Joseph show up. What is that intended to tell you? It's not just, oh, hey, what a cool story. It's you can trust him. He literally leads this old guy to the temple the exact moment. Have you had those moments in your life where something happens? You're like, wow, that's like too ironic to be ironic. 
Do you know what's happening in the moment? It is God in heaven organizing life. He's whispering to a friend, call them and encourage them. He's whispering to somebody else, you need to give them that gift card because they need it. He's whispering to them, man, why don't you just stop by there and ask how they're doing? And in those moments, while life is hard and painful and full of lots of moments where we can't trust, God is sprinkling in the middle of those, these moments where he's doing something profound and he's saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, trust me, just trust me. And then Simeon picks up this little baby, eight days old. I always feel like I'm going to break an eight-day-old baby. What was it like to hold that child in his arms? And no, there's something amazing. I don't know what it means, but there's something special going on here. And then he says this. Look at this, verse 29. Sovereign Lord. I don't know if you know this. The word sovereign just means in control, Lord. Not let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. He is the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed. Really? I mean, after a virgin birth, you're still amazed? Angels and shepherds and, really? This amazed you? An old guy in a temple saying something? Bar's been set pretty high, I think. Then Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall. He will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many are going to oppose him. Not exactly what you want to hear while holding an eight-day-old baby. This guy, he's going to make everybody's lives miserable. Well, not everybody. Some will be great. Lots of people are going to hate this dude. Is there another guy here that could hold the baby? But then he says this. I want you to see this. Verse 35. As a result... The deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So why did this Jesus come? I mean, what does this peace that he came to bring, how does it come? It comes by God revealing the deepest issues in your heart. Jesus is going to shine a bright spotlight on all of those deep things in your life, both the things that you have done that you desperately hope nobody will ever find out about, and the things that others have done to you that you desperately hope nobody ever touches. And Jesus is going to come and he's going to reveal all those things and pour his beautiful light on top of them. He's going to say, peace. I have forgiven you for what you've done against me. Peace. I'm going to lead you into forgiveness of what others have done against you. Peace. Be still and know that I am God. And then Simeon says perhaps the most profound thing to Mary Look at the last thing that he says. And the sword will pierce your very soul. We've already told Mary pondered all these things in her heart. What could all of this mean? I mean why while holding my eight-day-old baby are you telling me a sword is going to pierce my heart? And I wonder if this is the very word that Mary remembered while watching Jesus hanging on the cross and the Roman guard coming up and literally piercing the side of Jesus while blood and water flowed out. And I wonder if she thought back to that day and said, I always knew he'd be great. I knew the day he was conceived. I knew the day he was born. He was born to die. But he was born to die to bring peace. Bring peace. Guys, here's what I know. 
No matter what's going on in your life, whether you're on cloud nine celebrating with family and you can't wait to get together, whether you're grieving and hurting or stressing or whatever it is, here's what I know. Here's what I know. Jesus is the bread of heaven who comes to give you life. And he loves you. And he will expose all those areas of your heart where you won't let him in and you won't let him trust and you won't put your trust in him. And he will expose all of those because he loves you. And then he will die and he will raise from the dead and call you to do the same. And what that means is every day, every day you're going to wake up and say, God, I'm going to die to myself today. What do you want for my life, God? Because that's what I want. That's all I want. And when you finally take that step of faith, you'll find you don't have to be in control anymore. You know why? Because he is. And here's what then you could say to yourself, and here's the thing I want you to take with you. You can literally say, God, help me to trust today that you are in control. God, help me to trust today you are are in control. I want you to say that with me. Ready? God, help me to trust today that you are in control. I'll say it again. God, help me to trust today that you are in control. And if you don't believe it right now, then you just keep saying it. And the more you say it, the more you're going to feel these hands slowly loosen up. You're going to allow God to take whatever it is out of those hands you're holding on to. And Father God, we pray right now. We know that when Jesus came, he came for one purpose, to die. But in your majesty, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And he did that to bring peace on earth. A peace that says we can trust you with our eternity. A peace on earth that says we can trust you with our family. A peace on earth that says we can trust you with our jobs and with our lives and with our finances. God, the problem in this life, the problem in this life is that our sins and the sins of others, God, they've taught us not to trust. They've taught us not to follow, not to be faithful, not to put our lives in your hands. And so, God, at every turn, we think we have to control the outcome. We must be in control because, God, it is terrifying. It is terrifying to think of you being sovereign. So, God, teach us to trust that we might truly worship you. In Jesus' name.